This church has been very, very special to us. We want to thank you so much for sending the teams down to build one of our houses with the kids. But I want to tell you some stories this morning, and I feel that there is a, a message that God wants me to give to you here at Grace Community. Uh, Evie, every Tuesday and Thursday, works at another program that's actually funded by the government but led by a Christian lady, and it's to pregnant adolescents. And she brings back many stories that can break our hearts. And one of those stories is of a little girl who's only 12 years old that Evie met there, uh, pregnant, of course. The father of her child is her brother. He was 15 when incest happened in the home. And the government stepped in and said, these two can't be together because it's just going to go on and on. And so we have to separate the two. So what did the family decide to do? Keep the son and get rid of the daughter. So she ended up in this program that Evie ministers to where she'll take 15 girls on Tuesday and another 15 girls on Thursday. She and two other women from our team who actually were teenage moms themselves. And, and Evie ministers hope to these girls. Um, but when this girl, the 12-year-old, had her baby... She had another strike against her. Of course, the government wasn't going to let a 12-year-old be a mom. And so they decided that she was old enough to breastfeed and after three months took the baby away to be adopted out. So here she's a victim of incest. She's pregnant at 12. Then her family rejects her completely. And then the government takes away her baby. And she's only 12 years old. Stories like this abound. Day after tomorrow, Evie and I are going to leave back for Columbia. And one of the things that we have to face is a little girl that's living with us now 10 years. We took her in when she was three. She's 13 now. And the government is declaring that she has a right to her family. So they don't see that we've been her family for 10 years. She has a right to her biological family. And of course, the little girl would like to know what it's like to be able to be raised by a mom that rejected her 10 years ago. But what we're going to have to fight for is whether or not she goes back permanently at the end of the school year, which ends in November. Why? Why are we fighting for it? Because there's a long history in the grandma, the mom, the aunt of prostitution. And these women started the trade when they were 12 years old. And our little girl is 13. And that's one of the fears that we have. So you say to me, well, Steve, that's a long ways away. Bogota is 5,000 miles away. We don't have to really concern ourselves about those kind of things. Well, I feel that the Lord is trying to tell me to share with you the dangers that our kids face, the risks the threats that our kids are under. And you might say, yeah, Steve, that's right, but my kids, they're not worried about drugs and prostitution and violence in the home. My kids don't have to face any of that. But I want to tell you that many times the risks and the threats aren't quite as open, aren't quite as transparent as the ones that I've described to you. I actually think that some of the children here at Grace Community might be at greater risk 
than the two cases that I mentioned to you. You know why? Because the risks are much more subtle. I remember a few years ago when uh, Pablo Escobar and the drug cartels were putting bombs randomly in shopping centers and on street corners and when we were getting phone calls from the guerrillas that if we didn't pay extortion rates they would come back and kidnap me when I had a few death threats down in Colombia. Evie's grandma here in the States um, got quite sick. Actually, she was dying. And Evie, being a registered nurse, decided that she needed to come back to care for her grandma for a few months. And she brought our kids while I stayed down in Colombia. She put our kids into the no local neighborhood school. And uh, when she got back about three or four months later, she said something that I'll never forget. She said, Steve, I'm so glad we're raising our kids down here. And I was shocked, you know, with all the dangers and all everything going on. Even Pablo Escobar had said for every Colombian extradited to the States, he was going to kill five American children, and our kids were very, very vulnerable. And I said, Evie, how can you say that you'd rather raise our kids down here when the States is so secure? And she said, Steve, it's just that the dangers here are black and white. And in the States, it's like they're gray. It's like they're not so in your face. It's like they're so much more subtle. And I remembered back when I was a teacher at San Diego City Schools that I couldn't even mention the name Christmas because it had Christ in it. The teachers next to my classroom could teach their children how to meditate and how to relax and how to even let their new age spirit guides take them different places in public schools. And I was realizing, wow, there are a lot of subtle stuff here in the United States that's actually more dangerous than drugs and prostitution because it's so subtle. I would like to talk with you a little bit about a verse in Nehemiah. If you go with me to Nehemiah chapter 4, you'll see here that uh, the context of this is that Nehemiah has been charged by God to go and protect the people that are in Jerusalem that have been pretty well conquered. They're broken down. Their walls are not in place. They don't have the protection. And Nehemiah has been told by the Lord to fix that situation. Well, Many of the people joined him. There were uh, thousands of families that actually went with him, with mom, dad, and their kids. And as they're building this wall, the neighbors that weren't part of the Jews decided that this was very, very much against what they wanted. And so they decided that they were going to stop the work. By how? By killing the people that were doing the work. If you look at verse 11, it said, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us, ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Can you fast forward that threat to our kids today? Can you say that with our kids today, before we know it, before they, we are able to see it, before we find out, they'll be right there in among us looking to kill us and stop the work. 
I'm so grateful for Awana, I've heard of, of Awana. Uh, our kids were in Awana. We actually were able to speak to some of the Awana kids years ago here at Grace Community. I'm so grateful that a lady came up to me after the church service, the first service this morning, and said, Steve, do you uh, remember that a few years ago you scolded us and said, shame on you for not being in the public schools? And she said, that really lifted me into action, and now I'm in the public schools with Bible Club. And I said, what age levels? And she said, well, first through third, more or less. And I said, what about fourth through fifth? And she said, well, we just don't have enough volunteers. But the school is open to us to bring a Bible club after school hours at the school. If we just had enough people, these are kids at risk. These are the kids that subtly are being attacked. These are the kids that we need to start defending right here in Visalia. And so one thing that we need to do is acknowledge that our kids are being threatened. Acknowledge that our kids are in danger. Don't just say we're safe, we're secure. We're... No, we have to acknowledge that our kids are in danger. Deep down in your heart, you know that there is a war against our children. I believe you can see that war around you much of the time. So what are we going to do about it? Well, I don't think that the threat is always so physical. There's far greater threat that's spiritual. And so one of our responses is spiritual. We need to get before the Lord and submit to the Lord and reclaim our children. And that battle starts on our knees. I'd like to read for you a, um, a, a scripture that has been very, very special to our team because it was our, our team's um, verse, basically, when we started out 32 years ago down in Columbia. It's out of Lamentations, chapter 2. Uh, Lamentations talks about children dying in their mother's arms. Now, okay, yes, it might be out of Hunger, it might be because of the siege of the enemies, but it is an attack of the enemy. And what is the response that Jeremiah says here in Lamentations? Look at verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. He says very, very clearly, Arise, cry out in the night. As the watches of the night begin, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children. The battle begins on our knees. We pour out our heart before the Lord. We say to the Lord, God, show us the magnitude of the threat to our kids. We say to the Lord, Lord, may I feel deeply the need to pray. With our ministry, the way it started out, our team would gather together on Fridays and from nine o'clock at night, Till six o'clock in the morning, our team would be pouring out our heart before the Lord, fasting and praying before the presence of the Lord. Because with our street kids at that time, Friday nights was the worst night of the week. Now, if we can do that for children who are not even related to us, who really aren't our own, except God puts them into our hearts, could we not do that for those who are our own? That's where the battle begins. Let's go back to Nehemiah 4. 
And let's see what Nehemiah does about this threat against his children and his people that, are trying, that he's trying to protect. Go back to verse 13 on chapter 4 of Nehemiah. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points on the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up. And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Ah, does that send chills up and down your spine like it does me? Over here, Nehemiah is telling us, don't just sit back and relax. Don't just yawn and say, my kids are safe. They're not. Think of the kinds of threats that there would be. Ask the Lord to show you the ones that you can't think of. And then... Once you have God's heart for the kids, stand up and fight. One of the strategies that Evie and I have seen our team do is that we bring these kids in to live with us as part of our family, part of our own kids. We have four biological kids. We have three adopted kids. And I was so pleased to know that our four biological kids were open to having other kids in our home. Well, they didn't really have a lot of choice. Mom and I, Evie and I said, this is the way it's going to be. But for example, our first child that we adopted, it was our kids that said to us, can you look into what an adoption really is? That was part of our fighting, adopt the kids. As part of doing something practical, adopt the kids. And the second child that we adopted, Sarah, is the one that we brought back from Columbia six weeks ago because she had graduated from high school in June and the opportunities for college and the opportunities for work and the opportunities to get into USA culture and everything are much greater here. And so June the 27th, we left Columbia and we brought Sarah here to the United States and she's now living with her brother, Luke, and his wife, Ellie, and they're in Dallas, Texas, and She's working at Academy Sports and she's saving up her money to do what? To come back here to this area because just outside of Dinuba in a little village called Sultana, there's a ministry called Gleanings for the Hungry and they have a discipleship school and Sarah has decided that that's what she wants to do. Now, if you would look at Sarah's background before she knew the Lord, before she came into our family, you would see prostitution and you would see drugs and you would see hopelessness and you would see that she didn't know her biological father. Actually, her mother wouldn't know which one of the men was Sarah's biological father. But because God got a hold of her and we fought for her and we gave her hope, she now has a future. For us, that was the way that we responded. Now, I don't know how God is going to ask you to respond I don't know if he's going to ask you to take kids into your home. I don't know if he's going to ask you to go down to Oaklawn and, and be part of the, the staff that has the Bible clubs there. I don't know if God's going to ask you to volunteer in Awana. I don't know. Maybe some of you young people would end up down in Columbia working with us, with our kids. Maybe some of you young couples, God would say, adopt a child that doesn't have any hope. Whatever it is, 
God is telling you, act on it. Isaiah 58 basically says, which is the fast that I have chosen? And it is a choice. It's not something that you do lightly. The fast that I've chosen is to clothe the naked and to give food to the hungry and to take the wanderers into my own home. What is God going to ask of you? But he is asking you to defend the children. Now, fourth point that I want to come up with to share with you is just this. And it sounds kind of strange. And maybe I'm going to focus in on some of you who have hair color that's my hair color. Some of you whose kids are all grown up. And maybe you have grandkids or great grandkids. And that is, don't stop when you've reached your goal. Don't stop when you've had your victory. For example, some of you might be saying, yeah, Steve, that's right, but you know what? My kids are all grown up already. I've done what I could. I have to leave them in God's hands. Really? Is that how far our responsibility goes? Take a look at Eli in the Bible. His two sons were all grown up. They were priests, and they were really messing up in the tabernacle. And Eli did not correct him, and God judged Eli because he hadn't corrected his adult sons. There's still a responsibility, even when our kids grow up, because our kids are at risk, even if they're grown up. The spiritual threats will go on and on and on till our children's last breath. And you say, well, I hope that my children outlive me. I hope I never have to go to my child's funeral. I'm going to die before my children do. And yet, you know what? I think that we need to understand something. We need to understand that when we die, the prayers that we have lifted up before the throne for our kids don't necessarily die. I'm concerned about my grandchildren 50 years from now. I'm like, what's this world going to be like in 50 years? What are my grandchildren going to face that I've never had to face? You know, my mom and dad never had to face the internet, and they never had to face access to everything that it offers, and they never had to face many, many things that we face today. My great-grandparents were praying for me before I was ever born. Why can't we, the gray-haired people, the grandparents, start praying the prayers now that we want God to answer 50 years from now, long after we're gone? Why not do that? So I want to just share with you a story of something that happened to me last year in Switzerland. I was invited to go teach for a week to a group of young adults that were anxious to get into working with children at high risk. And I went a few days early before the seminar was supposed to start, and I joined in with some of my friends, um, a couple from, um, from Switzerland, Lucas Stefan and his wife Claudia from Colombia. And they live very close to the Matterhorn, and so Lucas, the second day, says to me, he said, Steve, would you, would you like to go see the Matterhorn? I'd only seen it in pictures and postcards, and I said, yes, absolutely. So we went by car to where he had to park it. Then we went into an Alpine train, one of those narrow-gauge things, because they don't allow cars close to the Matterhorn. And we went to the closest village at the base of the mountain called Zermatt. And I remember getting there and being so disappointed because the clouds had come in, and I couldn't see anything of the mountain. 
But usually when stuff like that happens, it's because God wants me to get a different lesson and do something that's even probably greater than that. And so in my disappointment, uh, I went with Claudia and with uh, Lucas, and I said, can we just walk around the village a little bit? And he said, yeah, sure. And I have this weird thing about cemeteries. I don't know if any of you also have this weird thing, but I like to go visit cemeteries and kind of make up what happened to the people that are on the tombstones. So, for example, one time I was in a cemetery and I saw seven names, seven tombstones, same last name, all died on the same date. And I said, whoa, must have been quite an accident or tornado went through the home or something. They all died the same day. And I have no idea who those people were or what the real story was, but it's just kind of like, you know, you kind of make up stories. So there in Zermatt, there was a big, big church, and we went around the backside, and there was a cemetery, and just oh, my, my interest kicked in, and so I said, I want to go look at these uh, tombstones. They might be from the 1600s or the 1700s, and yeah, there were some that were 400 years old and some 300, but most of the tombstones that I was seeing were from 10, 15, 20 years ago, and what really caught my eye was that the guys on there, almost all of them were young men, they had all died in their 20s. And I'm going like, wow, did the plague come through? You know, I mean, why are these guys all dying? 21, 23, 25 years old? And so I turned to Lucas and I said, Lucas, how come so many of these gravestones are these young, young men? And there was one that caught my eye, especially because it said he reached his goal and he died on the way back. And Lucas, who happens to be the emergency room doctor of the nearest hospital, and he gets all of the cases of the accidents that happen on the Matterhorn of the climbers, and he gets the cases of the skiers and everything. He said to me, oh, Steve, he said, yeah, these were all young men that died on the Matterhorn. And I said, but look, this one says he reached his goal. He says, oh, yes, yes. Almost all of them reached the top and had their picture taken, and they reached their goal. They reached the ascent. He said, but what many, many people don't realize is that it's much more difficult coming down than going up. And all of a sudden, I realized, that's why the mountain's clouded over. That's why I didn't come here to see a mountain. I came here to hear a truth that God wants to put into my heart. And it's coming down is much more dangerous than going up. So I said to Lucas, I said, why is coming down so much more dangerous? He says, oh, there's all kinds of reasons. He said, first of all, in the morning, it's clear. The sun is out and everything looks wonderful. And you can see where you're going. And it's, it's actually getting a little warm, even though the temperatures up there are freezing. He says, in the morning, there's no storms. And the storms come in in the afternoon. Much more difficult to see where you're going in the afternoons. He says, also, when you're going up, you're fresh. You're strong. You've got the goal ahead of you. He said, once you get there, you think you've made it. 
But you need to have just as much energy and actually more coming back down. And many of these young men died on the way down because they hadn't stored their reserve of energy. He says, going up, you have your handholds that you're looking where you're going to go. You have them at your eye level. You can see where you're placing your hands so that you can climb. But he said, coming down, you're trying to find footholds and your eyes aren't down at the level of your feet. It's much more difficult to see where you're stepping, where you're going to put your toes. He said, going up in the morning, you're mentally so focused on reaching your goal that you're not even thinking of getting back. You're only thinking of reaching it and getting there. And once you're there, you're like, yes, I made it. I made my goal. But you're not thinking of coming back down and how important that is. He said, I think mountaineers ought to talk about not just getting to the top. They need to talk about getting back alive. And the Lord started talking to me very, very greatly, very deeply about my life because I'm one of those gray-haired ones who has seen so much in the last 32 years down in Colombia. And Evie and I have reached so many goals and we've had so many victories and we've seen so many kids that have come out of the drugs and the prostitution and now they're young adults and now they're having families and now they're calling us and appreciating us and, and everything. And it's like you can say, wow, that was so great, that past. But the Lord is saying, you've reached your goals, you've reached the heights. Now, what's your attitude going to be on your way back down? How are you going to live your last years? Now, I believe that many of you are to the point where you wouldn't probably go back to Colombia and you probably wouldn't be on the street corner with our drop-in center with the guys smoking their crack there on the corner and the little preschoolers having to go through that gang. And yet you're not there. And you're saying to me, Steve, my best years are over. I've done everything that I could do. And you're saying, now it's time for me to rest. All of us want some rest. But I believe that it's the time going down that we can probably be even more effective if we look at the threats to our kids as being spiritual and we take the time to pray for our kids, to pour out our hearts like water before the presence of the Lord, to lift up my, our hands in his presence for the lives of our little ones. You see, it's not how you start that really counts. It's how you end up. I love to see the Olympics. And I love to see especially the races. And I've seen short races and I've seen long races and I've seen the 10,000 meter races. And I still remember one, one time that I was watching the 10,000 meters, which is I don't know how many rounds and rounds and rounds around uh, the track. There was one guy who went out in front and I think, let's say there's 50 laps. For 48 of the laps, he was out in front. And we were all like, yeah, look how far out in front he is. Look, look how good this guy is doing. He's doing great. But like on the second to the last lap, the ones behind him, started catching up and on the last lap they just 
passed him up. He ended up like in 10th place. The guy that had been in front all that time ended up with no chance at the podium. But the guys that had been way back in the back that we didn't think had any chance to win the race, they were the ones that had that last kick and they were the ones that passed him up and they were the ones that came in first, second, and third and they were the ones that were up on the podium getting the gold and the silver and the bronze medals. It's not how you start out that counts. It's how you end up when you're in the race. Let's look at 2 Timothy 4, 7, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Timothy is saying, uh, excuse me, Paul is saying to Timothy here, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. In other words, he's at the end of his life. But then take a look at what he says. I have fought. And I have finished. One last quick uh, ending of the story to Zermatt and the Matterhorn. As we went through the village, I saw a monument, which was a beautiful fountain. You can see it on the internet there, uh, if you want to. To a guy whose name is Ulrich Inderbeinen. Ulrich was a professional guide to the top of the Matterhorn. He successfully took groups up and back safely 370 times in his lifetime. Many of the young men whose tombstones I was watching never made it up uh, and down once. They made it up, but they didn't make it down. 370 times this man took people safely to the top and was able to get them back on time and safe. So what was this fountain? This fountain was commemorating that on the 125th anniversary of the very first climb to the top of the Matterhorn, Ulrich decided that he was going to reach the top to celebrate. But you know what? He was 90 years old. 90 and he made it to the top and he made it back and he went on to live to 104 and instead of a tombstone in the town he had a fountain put up in his honor now that to me is a finisher I may look 90 but I'm not I have a lot more life left in me to do what? to pour out my heart, to lift up my hands for the lives of the little ones. If he's in the same boat, I see many of you nodding. And I believe that you here at Grace Community are not going to give up having reached the goal of the children. You're not going to give up. You're going to come back. So, my advice to you is what Nehemiah said to his people. Nehemiah stood up and he said, remember the Lord God Almighty. He is great. He is awesome. Fight. Fight.